0: everyone you're listening to the cancer fight podcast recorded in louisville kentucky and produced by the colon cancer prevention project cancer fight aims to highlight the stories of advocates fighters and survivors of all forms of cancer as well as educate the public on cancer prevention and awareness with the help of our guests we explore the common qualities of what makes a successful cancer fight while equipping listeners with the information they need to learn fight and prevent cancer. We're glad you're here. Welcome to Cancer Fight.
1: Today, we're speaking with Martha Raymond, the founder and CEO of the Raymond Foundation, also the founding executive director of the GI Cancers Alliance. She is a perpetual colorectal cancer advocate and one of the first folks I remember when I got into this space back in the early 2000s. Hey, Martha Raymond, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Fight.
2: Great to be here, Whitney. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, we were chatting before we started. Everything's here in upstate New York, so a little more space out there. But uh, you got your first vaccine, second one coming. Well done. Yep. I, I'm on the list coming in. So tell me a little bit about yourself and, and, uh, and a bit about where you, how you got into this space. It's a pretty dramatic story to have both of your parents uh, with the same problem.
2: Right. Well, thanks again, Whitney, for having me and all of your team behind the scenes uh, for making this uh, easy and fun for sure. Um, So I've been in the cancer space as an educator, um, advocate, researcher for 30 plus years. Uh, I'm dating myself, but that's okay. Um, And I became involved in cancer advocacy, um, really, when both my parents um, were diagnosed with colon cancer. Uh, They were both young um, and passed away really in the prime of their lives. Um, They were young. I was very young, just in uh, elementary school when my dad became sick. And then um, uh, just in college when my mom uh, became sick and then passed away. So going back to that time period in the 1970s and early 1980s, you know, we didn't have the screening options that we have today. Colonoscopy was in its infancy and we didn't have, uh, you know, the CAT scans and the, you know, screening techniques we have now. Um, Back then, I remember um, exploratory surgery was really the diagnostic tool. And I say that now, and it kind of makes you shudder because you think of that, but it, you know, that was the reality for so many families and so many patients. Um, and then also to go back to that time period, especially in the 1970s, cancer wasn't spoken about. It was before the war on cancer and president Nixon's, you know, um, challenge to all of us to, you know, put cancer at the forefront. But back then, you know, people just didn't speak about it. And I think it was fear and lack of knowledge and lack of understanding. So, um, you know, it certainly was a difficult journey, but um, it it prepared me for this life of, um, like I said, advocacy and education and research, because, you know, if, if all of us can help one other family not have to go through what we've been through, then I think we've succeeded. Um, and it certainly wasn't the life I thought I would have, but I just can't imagine doing anything different and you know, fast forward 30 years uh, to where we are now. Um, and just every day, grateful to be able to, you know, like I said, help patients and help families as they struggle through a diagnosis.
1: Right. And, and just for the listeners who may think that only colorectal cancer is uh, the thing that people don't talk about back then, no one talked about any cancer. I mean, this was prior to uh, this, the Coleman Foundation. It really was a, uh, you know, an unspoken disease. And, and, and back then the myth was, of course, if you got opened up and they found cancer and the air got to it, you know, that would somehow contribute to the spread. And uh, it's a very tough time. I mean, people don't really imagine what it was like before cross-sectional imaging and CT and, and endoscopy. And, you know, we, we, we actually think that we're at the verge of a whole new era with molecular diagnostics where we're, we're not going to believe we didn't use molecular diagnostics you know, two or three decades from now, we would be talking about the dark ages of 2021. So, okay, well, so, so you're in college, you've lost your uh, father, right? And then you lost your mother and you're in college. What were you doing in college studying? And then did that change what you were studying and redirect you?
2: Absolutely. So you'll laugh Whitney when I tell you, but I was at the Juilliard school and I was uh, a voice major, a performance major. And um, enjoying, you know, enjoying a nice startup career in uh, singing and traveled to Europe and and had some great, you know, engagements that way. And um, so, like I said, this was nothing that I had thought, you know, my life would, you know, this direction my life would take. But I realized pretty quickly, and I still love music and I still sing, but certainly not professionally like my goal or my plan was but I learned pretty quickly. Um, and I think a lot of, uh, caregivers and family members will understand when I say this, that when my mom became so sick and, um, and then passed, you know, nine months later, um, it really, it really transformed my thinking because she was my greatest, you know, cheerleader, if you will. She was the one that was always there and saying, you got this, don't be nervous. You can do this. And the, you know, my, my biggest supporter. And I think when you know she became ill i clearly didn't feel like singing and then when she passed it just it took all of that joy away from what i was doing um and i struggled for you know six months or so and then i said you know i don't think this is the direction i should be going right now um you know, but clearly over the years, I've still been involved in music and you know, I love my Broadway and, and everything like that. But but just not the direction, like I said, I thought my life would take.
1: Right. So did you shift? Uh, w- w- so when did you shift from Juilliard into either a, a medical profession or uh, you've got tons of work in hospice and palliative care and you've had right. a real focus on, you know, managing the cancer uh, in addition to prevention But your focus has really been on that that care around the colorectal cancer incident. When did you shift from that uh, musical background into saying this is going to be my new mission?
2: Yep. So right after graduation uh, from my bachelor's, you know, in my music um, degree, I said, you know, for graduate school, I'm going to switch that focus, go into more of the public health space, the education space, so that I can learn how to, you know, become a, uh, you know, someone that can speak to groups, speak to individuals about the importance of cancer prevention and anybody that would listen, you know, I just began that way. And it's, it's amazing. And I'm sure Whitney, you, you hear this all the time, but anybody that's been diagnosed with a cancer, they will always call you. It could be prostate. It could be breast. It could be lung. And I'm always happy to speak with people because the the disease state may be different, but so many of the emotions and so many of the feelings are still the same for both the patient and the caregiver. So yeah, I switched and went right into grad school. And like I said, um, from there really started focusing on the patient education piece, Um, a lot of research, which I just um, enjoy so much. Um, And a lot of the research we've done over the years has been patient reported outcomes research, so it's, it's speaking directly to patients and speaking, um, you know, with caregivers on specific topics, whether that's in focus groups or town halls or through, you know, national surveys and and then really listening to what our patient community is telling us because they know what their unmet needs are. You know, we don't need to tell them they they're living it. And I think over the years, I've just learned so much from our communities Um Again, whether it's a gastrointestinal cancer, whether it's lung cancer, breast cancer, um, to really understand that patient perspective and voice and and not just say, oh, yeah, we're listening, but to listen and then do something, create programs that speak to those unmet needs. So that's kind of how, you know, like I said, beginning in grad school, um, how I shifted that focus and uh, yeah, never looked back.
1: Well, tell me a little bit of, because when you're, so it sounds to me you're in the eighties. We're not even screening for colon cancer. Uh, Reagan got his colon cancer. What did, did you have any role in when uh, they were doing the original uh, polyp studies uh, in New York? Uh, Did you have any role in that where all of a sudden we you know identified some things that we could do actually to either detect it early, uh, not quite to prevention yet behind you, but can you tell us what it was like to be in New York during those transformative times?
2: Well, it was, it was interesting to say the least because there again, you know, in, in the early eighties, we were speaking about cancer more, but like you said, um, it was limited. It really was. And especially for a young person at the time, you know, I was 22 um, to be, to be out there trying to speak to individuals, you know, that we always say the unworried well, because uh, you know, individuals would look at me like I had, you know three heads, but I would say, you know, I lost my parents and they were so young. And if you had looked at them a year before their diagnosis, they looked perfectly healthy. You know, they, there were no outward signs that maybe anything was wrong. So I think always looking at that perspective of how are we going to reach those unworried well folks, whether they're 25 or they're 55, um, I think has just been a big, um, Mission of mine, to be honest with you, um, but yes, in those early days, um, to to look at different studies that were going on and doing anything I could to be in that room, to be at, you know to be at the table, to be in a conversation, or just listen from the professionals and and learn as much as I could, um, you know. Thinking back to those days, the early in the early eighties.
1: Yeah, and did it help you to be a performer? I mean, a lot of people who, who are advocates you know, they, they're reluctant to get into the space because they have to do public speaking. They have to get up in front of people and overcome the butterflies and stuff. Did you feel like you were better prepared because of your uh, vocal
2: background and your music performance background? I really did. And I think even to this day, I, I think that as long as you're speaking from your heart and speaking from your experience, you know, That's what makes all of us who we are. And so I think that always kind of, you know, grounds me and levels me, even if it's a big presentation and, you know, the nerves are going to come. But I always think, you know, if we speak to what we've been passionate about and, uh, you know, fulfilling our purpose, I think that really does help for sure.
1: For sure. Well, tell me a little bit about when you decided to form a foundation. And uh, again, I think by the time I met you in the early 2000s, you were already, a leader in the C five New York kind of space up there. What what really pushed you to go from being an advocate over in this space to really doing the broader piece, which is raising money, putting boards together, you know, all the hard work that comes with uh, nonprofits.
2: Right. So as you mentioned, uh, I'm founder of the Raymond Foundation, named after my parents, um, and then um, executive founding executive director of the GI Cancers Alliance, and I think what's always motivated me throughout my whole life is working in collaboration. Um, I think anytime we can partner with any group, whether it's, uh, you know, healthcare professionals, whether it's other advocacy groups, whether it's uh, state-based uh, health departments, anytime we can work together, I think we're all better because we learn from each other. And And quite frankly, I think when we partner and collaborate, we just Naturally, reach a much broader audience, which is always the goal when you're trying to help provide education or empowerment. So, in founding the Raymond Foundation, you know, way back in 1986, um, to be honest, I did not know a heck of a lot about not not not-for-profit management, Um, but you learn pretty quickly, and you learn who you can count on, and what professionals, you know, don't mind if you ask, you know. the same question twice or whatever that might be. So I learned to kind of broaden my network. Um, Again, try to be at a table, try to be in the room when there were important conversations so that I could learn and then take that knowledge back to the patient community. Um, So really started out in a very grassroots way for the Raymond Foundation. But um, as I said, over the years, we've really kind of developed into, which I like to think of as a little bit of a niche in that for so many different organizations, we will provide you know, consulting activities so that we may then go right to the patients and say, you know, we're, we're conducting a survey on you know, whatever the topic might be, and then be able to share that with other organizations so that we can be um, you know, there to present uh, the patient voice accurately and effectively, and then maybe whatever that organization is, they can use that to reach their communities. Um, And then with the GI Cancers Alliance, um, I've just found so much joy in in this organization because right now we have about 50 um, gastrointestinal advocacy groups, um, medical professionals, um, industry partners, and we all work together to help address unmet needs of the GI cancer population. And again, creating that strong unified voice, Um, because as you know, so many of the smaller disease states, like possibly appendiceal cancer, they don't have the, um, you know, the outreach or the, you know, the, maybe sometimes the opportunities to reach different communities, but working together, you know, with a, with a unified voice, we can reach all of the all of the communities. So that's, that's just been great and really enjoying that and enjoying meeting new partners and, you know, working together. All
1: right. So you have a lot of uh, mix between industry as well as patients, as well as researchers. Uh, you are one of the early people to be involved in patient navigation and you, yep. uh, you know that's sort of we all accept that navigation is part of our real life. In fact, we have lay navigators now who aren't training. Tell me a little bit about how that worked into your uh, foundation, and and I know you've spread the the navigation word throughout, and probably done more. So navigation is critical. I mean, now that we have computers, uh, it's like you know when your your uh, phone app drives you into a field because it says where you are. Well, it's not always where you are, right? and computers don't always help us. Talk to us a little bit about how navigation evolved in, in your space, and New York was one of the uh, the, the early leaders in this, um, I, I just noticed that that was really early in your, your work in the nonprofit space.
2: Absolutely, so I couldn't agree more on the importance of you know patient navigators, lay navigators, healthcare navigators, um, and way back when, um, I uh, met with uh, Dr. Harold Friedman, our uh, champion, our you know innovator of patient navigation, and you know originally in New york city he's the one that said you know this this will make a difference, and I believe it started in the breast cancer community um, but he he really was the champion and uh, so I took his course in New York City, um, which was great and uh, learned so much i mean i it was really incredible. And uh, I'm so glad I did. And I'm so glad for those experiences. And then throughout my career, I've just tried to take that wonderful model that Dr. Friedman established and keep building out. Um, you know, I think navigation is so important for screening to help get our folks in there and make sure that they're doing their prep and they're, they have transportation. All of that, you know, all of that is so important. But I think, too, once the patient is diagnosed, Throughout that journey, it's so important because a navigator can help put patients in touch with, you know, uh, if they might need help with transportation or they might need insurance um, information or they might need help with, you know, food instability, all sorts of things. Um, Help manage the communication piece and give kind of tips and uh, advice on how to, you know, communicate effectively with your healthcare, you know, uh, provider. So, so many things, I think, a navigator who who's trained and really takes that role very seriously can be that um, bridge, that transition. Um, And throughout my career, I've, I've met with so many patients, but then also I've also said, if you ever want to bring your family members into this or your caregiver, because I think there, again, there's communication is so important. And sometimes it's difficult for the patient to really express all they're going through. And if there's any type of miscommunication or, lack of understanding with the caregiver family I think it's important to be able to get that out there and sometimes with a third party it just makes it easier um, and I've, I've also said the same thing with patients who are maybe afraid to ask their doctors different questions or feel that they might be challenging them if they they might have a question or could we try this instead of that and many times I've, I've you know represented the patient and just said you know, I know you won't feel this way to the healthcare professional, but the patient is feeling uneasy. And so, again, it's just a little bit of a bridge that I think can make a big difference for patients.
1: Right. And, and don't you think that's become even harder now in the digital electronic health record age where I know <laughs> physicians struggle with serving the needs of documentation and, and, and the visit? And then, and, you know, it's so difficult to move back and forth between becoming a data entry tech yes. and then and then connecting with the patient, which is I, I still think that's why most doctors and nurses go into this business is so they can have that personal connection and help that person heal. Do you find it more challenging now or, or less challenging because you, you've, you've, you've been across the spectrum? Uh, is it getting easier or is it getting better? Because we've, that's so much what I hear from folks is that they just don't feel like they can get their physician's attentions. And I know how difficult it is to, to, to do the work of the provider these days for sure.
2: Right. And I think it's, it's a little bit of both. I think in some respects, it's a little easier with the, you know, kind of explosion of of, uh, telemedicine because I think patients I don't know. I think it takes a little of the anxiety off of them as opposed to walking in the little room and the door closes. And, you know, so I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think the other thing too, that, you know, we always chat with patients about is be prepared so that when you have that 10, 15, 20 minutes of time with your, you know, clinician, know what you're asking and, and be prepared, be knowledgeable. Um, and, take someone with you if you can or or rec- ask if you can record it so that when you're home you can listen to it again and say you know that's what they meant i didn't understand it at the time but that's what they meant but um but yes and I, I do think with with you know virtual healthcare it has opened up a whole new world um probably not any easier for the clinician i'm sure it makes things sometimes a lot more difficult but but i think it helps the patient because they can have their caregiver there or they can you know, be a little bit more comfortable in their home surroundings to be able to say, you know, um, these are my questions and I don't feel, um, you know, nervous to ask them.
1: Yeah, well, God knows what people do online and digitally. So, I mean, I've got to think it lowers inhibitions broadly.
2: <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, I, I have no idea either.
1: <laughs> I, no, I, I think that's a fascinating uh, insight on that, because, again, um, and it almost makes you think about how do you send out a prep piece for a patient, you know, to set up for Absolutely. those telemedicine visits, particularly in the cancer space. It's different if I've got a cold or something like that, but these are, you know, life and death decisions, and 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 even for people who are having symptoms and such like that, who are interfacing with their primary care doctors, trying to access appropriate diagnostics, uh, as we see in young folks. You know, I mean, you know, the uh, the issues about these being. Put off by patients and then subsequently put off by providers. You know, maybe maybe that digital space will shorten and shorten that interval. I mean, that's that's a very fascinating piece. I wonder if people are more more comfortable to say, "Hey, I've been having some rectal bleeding," versus being locked in that room with that provider in that uncomfortable tension. So we'll see.
2: Right, Right. and I I do hope it will kind of level that playing field so that patients do feel more comfortable and. And really, you know, we always talk about working toward patient-centered care, and I always take it a little bit of a step further, and I said, but let's start or, or make sure that patient-centered communication is a part of that, because it's like with any relationship. If you don't know how to communicate or, or know what to ask or, you know, I think you're in trouble, no matter if it's a spouse or a child or whoever that might be, but I think especially with a, a provider, and the patient, I think, it's just crucial. And um, so, I agree. I hope that telehealth will maybe bridge that a little bit and make it more comfortable for the right. dialogue.
1: Right. And and you know, uh, physicians out there, you know, the, the best thing you can do at the beginning is listen, you know, and don't interrupt and let people t- get their story out. Many times, they'll tell you the diagnosis, you know, if you just don't interrupt them after the first sentence or so. I think physicians interrupt after the first ten or fifteen seconds, on average when they're in a, when they're, when they're looked at in a room and how how quickly does the person get something out before the physician's in there? So, so that's great. Well, so you've done the whole gamut. You're, you're all around it. What, what qualities do you think that, you know, you brought into your nonprofit space as you've grown and again, had to deal with those terrible losses? Uh, What kind of qualities do you think you brought to it? And then subsequent to that, What do you think you've learned from being in this business for 30 years that you now use in your daily life to help you get around the craziness that we have to deal with?
2: Right. I think the main thing that I brought 30 years ago and and continue is is understanding because I've been there, you know, um, and I think, you know, it's one thing to talk the talk, but when you've walked that walk, you really, you get it. And, um, and I think empathy is another really important thing because again, we all struggle, every family struggles with different things and, you know um, it's challenging, you know, whether it's cancer or whatever it might be health wise. But I think, I think taking a moment and just putting yourself in that person's shoes and to, you know, really, like you said, listen and And again, one of the other things I've learned and I always say to patients, you know, be sure to communicate this with your clinician is, is really listen to what they're going through and then try to get a better understanding of what their goals are. You know, if goals of treatment, I guess I should say, because not everyone is the same. And if you have a stage four pancreatic cancer patient and, you know, with treatment, they may live another three months. But those three months, they might be confined to bed. Maybe they would say, you know, maybe I'm not going to do this treatment right now. Maybe I'm going to take that trip. Maybe I'm going to, you know, enjoy what I can. So I think that's so important. Um, but again, I think it's, it's asking and, and listening and then not having any judgment. It, everyone is entitled to their own, you know, um, perspective and how they want to live their life. So um, those I think would be my, my couple things. And then what I've learned, oh my gosh, I don't think we have time, Whitney. Um, I think one of the things I learned uh, and I'm still learning it, trust me. But um, I, like I said before, I've always been somebody that likes to, to work together, to partner, to, to learn, you know, always learning, always trying to take a new class and, you know, and always trying to learn. Um, But I think one of the things I've learned is that, you got to be careful for individuals that maybe don't have the best interests of others at heart. And I don't know if I'm saying that exactly correctly, but I think there are, you know, situations where, you know, you have the best intentions, but you just got to be careful. And I always say that to patients as well. Take a moment, just kind of evaluate, you know, what this relationship might look like. And then, and then say to yourself, is this something that is worth Is worth my time is this something worth pursuing is this opportunity um really what you know they say it is um and like I said I'm still learning that because I'm always like oh you know it's great and you know how can how can we help but sometimes I think you just have to in that business sense take a step and really evaluate I hope that makes sense
1: yeah, no, I think it's. I think I think when you've been through as many trials as you've been in recruitments, I mean, you, you know, you, it's appropriate to be skeptical a little bit, right? I mean, I, I think that's what you're describing. So, so other side of being a little skeptical, which we all are lots of times. What's the most frustrating you thing you encounter right now as you help people in their cancer fight uh, individually? What's what? Where's the medical industrial complex failing? us right now. And you can tell me also where it's going great, where we've made progress.
2: I think where it's going great um, or, or good, you know, really good, um, is that the whole, I think, the healthcare professional system, I think we're all beginning to work more closely together. And so, you know, if that's a multidisciplinary care center, I think though, you know, incredibly important for patients to know that they can get all their treatment within a center, all their records are there, they don't have to worry. I think that, you know, in the advent of more and more of those centers across the country, I think is just, is a game changer for patients. Um, so anytime I, a patient says, you know, what do you think of, of a center like this? And it's it's a multidisciplinary, I think that's, that's incredible. Um, I think one of the ways that we all kind of are still lacking is providing that, um, emotional psychosocial support for patients, because it's one thing again, to treat the physical, which obviously is so important, but if the patient is really struggling, um, you know, in their emotion, emotions and their mental state and not able to, you know, function, then that's equally a problem. And I think, I think, like you said, we're also busy. You know, clinicians only have that 10, 20 minutes with the patient. They may not see those signs. And I think that's where, as advocates and educators and researchers, we all can focus more to to check in with patients and just be able to say, are you okay? I know, you know, your physical side effects, they're under control, but how are you? You know, how are you and how is your family? Um, Because, you know, living through a diagnosis. And being able to really live is, is crucial. All
1: right. Well, <clears throat> when you face challenges, do you have any tips for how you handle adversity?
2: I think one thing, and this is me personally, but I, I, I recommend this to patients all the time, is to just take a step back. Take a step back process whatever the information may be, whether it's a bad scan or whether that's, you know, a new treatment or or whatever that might be. I think it's just important to really kind of settle, to level yourself, to really take a beat. Um, And I don't mean take a month because a lot of times in treatment, you can't, you know, it's too important to keep going. But I think just to really um, take that time to process whatever that information is. And then, in conjunction with your care team, really talk it through. If the treatment has stopped working, well, what are our options? Are clinical trials an option? What if I do this? Will I still be eligible for that? I think it's just so important. And I think, um, especially with a cancer diagnosis, it's sort of that knee-jerk reaction so many times that we feel, oh my God, I gotta do it right now. Important that it's gotta be done very quickly, but I still think taking that moment or two to process is very important.
1: Right, well, and, and as a leader of, a, of an organization that does grants and set the things up, um, <clears throat> do you have any tips for how you turn great ideas of which there's a lot into an actual impact? What, what, what are the young folks who wanna be advocates or wanna do something in their community or their state? How do you take a great idea and then turn that into a, an actual plan or program that has impact on people?
2: So one of the first things I say is constantly look for new educational resources that are out there. I mean, with the Internet, we are so fortunate that we can find so many amazing uh, studies that are available across the globe. So that's the first thing I would say. Never stop learning. I mean, if you could see my office, I have stacks of, you know, journals and research articles that I, I just have cataloged so that when I have one of my crazy ideas, I can say, you know, let me see what else has been done. And the worst thing any of us can do is reinvent the wheel. If if the wheel's already there, let's take upon that and and go one step further. So that would be one of the first things is just never stop learning, you know, be that lifelong learner. And another thing I'd say is. Once you have one of these ideas, and this happens to me all the time because I'm always come up, coming up with these you know kind of ideas, but I'll always go to a kind of a close group and say, what do you think? Is this doable? Who would this serve? And, and are there needs out there that we know uh, are unmet? And then how, how is this going to help? How is this going to help our patient community or whoever the program might be for? Um, so I would think those two things are the first, and then once that idea begins to solidify and you get it on paper and you look for funding is to then be able to say to the funder, these are the reasons we're doing it, you know, the, the unmet need, we're trying to meet this need. And then the practical steps that are going to be there to, you know, to build your program, to build your project, and, um, and then be able to show those impact numbers to really understand that, you know, we've reached 10,000 patients and we met our goal or, you know, or, In six months, we, we achieved a screening uptick, you know, whatever that might be.
1: Uh, Those last minute of your talk is like a masterclass. Everybody who wants to actually turn that idea. Well, it's so, it's so critical. I mean, I'm the, that's not my forte, right? I'm a, I'm the, you know, but how you just described it is take that idea, bounce it off small focus groups, see if there's real proof of concept, do your research you know, and then and then clearly lay it out and pragmatically explain it as you move down the process. So I, I wish I'd you'd have told me that 20 years ago. I probably would have gotten ahead.
2: Well, so, you know, so. what I, I learned, you know, you, you do, you learn as you go. And and I think one of the, the most important things for me always is I I have this wonderful, I mean I a lot of professional colleagues that I can bounce things off of, but I have a, a really great core group that keeps growing and then it'll morph, it'll do this. Of, of patients and caregivers that I've stayed in con- t- contact with for many, many years. And I know they'll tell me if this is a waste <laughs> because they don't, they don't need it. You know, they don't need to be wasted. You know, their time doesn't need to be wasted. And if it's not, gonna, if it's not going to be um, something that's going to be helpful, then clearly no one wants to waste anybody's time or resources um, for a program that just, you know, isn't worth it.
1: Yeah, it's just great insight. I love the way you laid it out. So tell me, how has COVID affected your foundations work? Uh, you're, you're, in, you're in upstate New York, uh, but uh, certainly you work in the city a lot. How has the COVID really impacted what's going on in New York and, and with uh, your foundations?
2: So I have to say, you know, it's been terribly difficult not to be able to see patients and, you know, and, and like we said prior to the interview, not being able to see each other colleagues get together at conferences and things. Um, So that's been very difficult. And I know the isolation has been very difficult for patients and caregivers um, especially those, you know, if you're going to the infusion center and you're going alone, you can't have somebody with you. I mean, that's just, you know, or you go through surgery and you're, you you can not have your lover. Very, very difficult. So that I would say has just been horrific and continues to be hopefully until we can, soon get the vaccines out and, and get through this. Um, so that's obviously very bad, very negative. But one thing I will say that, cause I'm always looking for the glass half full, is that I think COVID, uh, one of the, maybe the only positive thing we can say about it is that it's really kind of leveled the playing field. And I think what I mean by that is for patients or caregivers that maybe couldn't travel to a conference, For example, like maybe ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology. This year, everything went virtual, so they were able to log on to those sessions. And maybe they were in bed, or maybe they were receiving treatment, but they were able to watch all of those scientific advances. Um, Or other conferences, you know, patient advocate conferences, for example, that you know we had to go virtual. But it it brought it brought that to everyone's living room, so that if you if you maybe wouldn't have been able to go to California anyway now you can still be part of that conversation. So I think that's been, um, you know, a glimmer of hope throughout all of this. And I really hope that moving forward, that, you know, major conferences and advocacy groups will continue that virtual component for patients that can't travel or choose not to um, for health reasons or whatever that might be. Um, So, and I think for us, you know, with the foundation and the Alliance that you know, our work has just gotten, um, we've been busier than ever, to be honest with you. And I think so much of that is that patients, especially if they've been feeling lonely or isolated, have really come um, out in full force and not only supported us, but also, you know, we've hopefully supported them, um, you know, to let them know they're not alone.
1: Is, is, is there a, a program for virtual navigation or how do you how do you navigate people virtually through Zoom uh, and, and and not being that walking up to the counter and knocking, say, I'm here on behalf. Has that helped you guys? Are you learning how to use it? Is there a different process?
2: You know, I think it has helped, again, to be honest, because I think that there are again, patients that might never have thought, I'm going to try this. You know, now they're like, well, you know, maybe this can help me to get, you know, through to my insurance company or To help me feel like I can go for my screening, even though I'm scared and what protocols are in place. So I think I think it's made it a little bit easier. And again, I think sometimes with our navigators, just seeing that person face to face like this, it really does. Even though you can't be in the same room, it does bring you closer together. You can have that joke. You can say, you know, excuse me, will I have my sip of coffee? Whatever that might be. Or your dog's barking. You know, it's fine because it brings it all it brings it all back. You know, we're all in this together type of thing.
1: Cool. Cool. All right. Well, since you're in the business, I'm going to take you through a lightning round of questions and, uh, Uh-oh. and that's okay. And there's just simple things and I want to get your opinion on them. And uh, you know, you don't have to opine, but if you feel like you want to, how about uh, changing the screening age from 50 to 45? It's about time. <laughs> Stool <laughs> versus structural screening. Like a colonoscopy.
2: You know, as Dr. Winner said, the best test is the one that gets done.
1: Got it. Family history collection. Are Americans ever going to be able to collect an actual family history and use it?
2: My life, I can only hope, you know, the importance of family, knowing your family history and your family health history is just, it's just critically important. And so I advocate for that every single day, many times a day. So I hope we're going to get there. And I hope, I hope um, families, when we are able to be around the dinner table again, will take that opportunity to say, you know, what is our family health history? How can we all be more involved? And how can we know what Uncle Harry passed from and Aunt Mary? You know, I mean, all of those things that are so important that we may take for granted, but critically important for, for not only us but for our children, you know down the line.
1: Early age onset colon cancer.
2: Um, devastating. And um, as a family that's been you know touched by that, affected by that, I think there again, it's just that education, the awareness, the outreach, the advocacy,'t can't, we can't do enough to help these young adults. How about on-time
1: screening versus just get screened sometime.
2: I think on-time screening is just again, it's just critically important. And and I would I always say this, and it sounds very, you know, elementary, but it, it kind of resonates with people. When the car, when your car light goes off, it says that says check engine or you need oil change. We don't let that go and go and go. We go, we get our oil changed, we get the check engine light checked because you know that something you're preventing, that something could go wrong. And I think that for people that are, they're scared, they don't wanna do it, I get it. I mean, I think we all get it, but there again, that knowledge is power. And if you don't know, and you're just thinking, oh my gosh, it could be there, it could be there. Then think about that time you're wasting worrying about it. Just do what you have to do. And it's much better to have a colonoscopy, for example, than to have to go to chemotherapy.
1: Second opinions.
2: Very important. And I think it's part of that patient-centered communication with your physician to be able to very, you know, uh, you know, in a very kind way, just say, "I I think I'd like to get a second opinion. What do you, do you have thoughts on that? Is that okay with you? I think it's so important because there again, you don't buy a car, usually just going to one dealer, you shop around, you try to get that best price for the car. And I think we shouldn't take our health any less seriously. We should just make sure that the fit is right, that we have a good relationship, a good rapport. Not everyone will get along with everybody else. And that's fine because we're all different. We all have different personalities, but find that provider that, that syncs with you, that you're you know in step with. And I think it will be uh, much better for the whole cancer journey.
1: Great. Genetic testing. I still find so many people who've not gotten genetic testing, even though they meet guidelines. How do we push that across the finish line?
2: Yeah. Again, just critically important. And I think, I think a lot of that is fear and lack of the knowledge of what that can help a families with. And I, and again, I always say, you know, if you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for your children, do it for your nieces and nephews, do it for the generations that will come after you because with so many advances, we've learned so much that so much can be done now. And, If it is, for example, in a colorectal cancer family, a Lynch syndrome or FAP or anything like that, there's so much screening that we can do to to prevent any cancer from ever forming. So I think it's just so important, so important.
1: Great. Any positive disruptive technology out there or artificial intelligence type of stuff that we should be keeping our eye out for? What's what's coming down the road that's going to help us?
2: That's a good question. You know, and I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for that, but I do think every day, you go on social media, you go on Twitter, you learn something new. And so I don't know what that is, but I know it's out there. And I think that, um, especially with all the artificial artificial intelligence out there, I, I think there's just going to be huge breakthroughs coming down the pike.
1: Love it you want to give a shout out to anybody in your organization or folks you're working with right now who are helping advance uh, the mission of the Raymond Foundation and the GI Cancer Alliance?
2: Absolutely. So with the Raymond Foundation, um, I'm, I'm just so pleased. It's really within our family. Uh, my daughter, Margaret Ann, who you met many years ago, um, she spoke at a conference probably 10 years ago now um, when she was just a teenager, and she is really working so hard in the communication aspect, a lot of our research initiatives, just doing an amazing job. And I think too, it's like I said before, it's just keeping that, you know, keeping the generations going, making sure they understand the importance of of everything we've been speaking about. So, uh, definitely Margaret Ann and then her fiance, Keith, who is a son to me and, uh, has again just been incredible with all of our work. And GI Cancers Alliance, you know, we have 50 plus members, um, incredible groups, incredible advocates. Um, I would give a shout out to uh, Dr. John Marshall at uh, Georgetown University, the Roosh Center. This was his idea, he was brainchild. And uh, five, six years ago, we all met at ASCO GI and had a dinner and just sat around and said, what can we do? How can we, how can we bring this to fruition and proud to say that, you know, six years later, we're, you know, going strong. So, um, yeah, I think those would be my shout outs and a shout out to you, Whitney, for, for this platform. Cause it's just great.
1: Great. Well, you are too kind, you know, you're already invited. You don't have to do all that after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> so Martha, listen, we've been at it a while. You and me, I'm coming on two decades for me and you a bit <laughs> longer. Uh, Tell our listeners, what is your best advice? What's your prescription for people who face a cancer fight or even for people who want to get into the space and work harder at it as you and I have? What's your prescription for a successful cancer fight?
2: You know, for me, and I know everyone is different, we're all individuals, but for me, it's been taking the pain that I've gone through and and turning that into my purpose. And I can't. Imagine doing anything different. Uh, I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think, um, you know, every day I honor my mom and dad. And um, I just, you know, you keep going. And even days when it's difficult and you lose loved ones and it's it's tough. But I think you just have to keep saying, you know, this is the reason I do this. And like I said, it, it's taking the pain I went through and and making it my life's purpose.
1: Great. Well, those are amazing words to inspire all of us and to take home with you. Martha, thank you so much for spending time with us and telling the great story of, of your work and your foundation to our listeners on the Cancer Fight podcast. It's really been a great hour.
2: Great. Well, thanks, Whitney. And thanks to all your team behind the scenes as well. Okay.
1: Martha Raymond, the Raymond Foundation. Thanks again.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for being with us today on Cancer Fight. Before you go, be sure to check out the podcast description for any resources mentioned in today's episode. And you can let us know your thoughts on this conversation by emailing info at kickingbutt.org. And last, for all the latest updates on the project's work, you can follow the Colon Cancer Prevention Project on all social media platforms or visit our website at coloncancerpreventionproject.org. Till next time, fight on cancer warriors.